Thank you, choir. They were singing that song. I uh, preaching from Luke's gospel this morning, and as they were singing Holy Spirit prior to our text, there's a passage of just a few chapters earlier in Luke's gospel where Jesus is urging his disciples to pray. You're familiar with with that text where he says, ask, you'll receive, seek, you'll find, knock, and the door will be open to you. And that's a promise that Jesus gives in relationship to prayer. And, but it's with that verse and that teaching where he goes on to say, how much more will the Father give to those who ask uh, his Holy Spirit? And so I was what a, what a great song, what a great prayer that, God, you'd pour out your spirit upon us more and more as, uh, as we worship. Let's, let, let me pray with you briefly and then invite you to read with me in Luke chapter 12. Father, we pray that we would be a church that's without spot or wrinkle or blemish like a pure bride adorned for you, Lord Jesus, that we'd be genuine a genuine people, Lord, who love you. And that, God, we would not be intimidated by any threat of this world, no fear, for your perfect love casts out all fear. And, God, that you would work in us deeply through the presence and power and person of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd bless your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinking back regarding the text that we're going to read in just a moment, over the years I've been asked from time to time by uh, different individuals, they'll read something um, from either Luke 12 or Matthew 12, and they'll come across a passage of Scripture regarding the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so they'll come to me and say, uh, explain to me what this means, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and I'll usually ask them, why are you asking me that? And it's usually because they've read this and, and they have some questions about what it means and then they have some concerns whether or not they have done that and they're fearful that they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, serious sin, something in which they can never be forgiven of. And my first thought usually is, well, if you're asking about whether or not you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and you're concerned, you have a fear of that, then you probably have nothing to worry about. But uh, as we continue through this series about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit, I want us to look at this uh, text. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? When, and why is such a sin so serious that Jesus says it cannot be forgiven? And so I invite you to read, read with me in your Bibles from Luke chapter 12. I hope that you bring your Bible with you each Sunday. Luke 12, starting with verse 1. Luke 12. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear, in the inner rooms, will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven and when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So what is this sin? What, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, to understand it, it needs to be seen, interpreted in its context. So what was the context? What was it that led Jesus to talk about this sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, if you want to understand the context, you need to go back to chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, look with me to chapter 11. And let me just kind of go through this, walk through this very quickly to kind of set the scene for what we're going to look at in our text. In the very first verse of chapter 11, the 12 asked Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Something that you never find any other place in the Bible. They, they're watching, they're always learning from him, but nowhere else does the Gospels record that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And I think it was because when they heard him pray, they were... a they were amazed, really impressed with this kind of relationship, this personal, intimate communion that he had with God, and it moved them. And so they asked him to teach them to pray. And he goes on and he provides an outline for prayer, and then he drives home one point of regarding prayer more than anything else, and that's the importance of persistence. He says, you, you brothers need to persist in prayer. Um, and he gives a couple of parables to that point, persistence. So whatever is on your heart, whatever is weighing on you, whatever is on your mind, then bring it to the Lord and persist in prayer. God wants us to persist. And then we go on and you see Jesus beginning to demonstrate his power over the devil. 
there's a man who's a mute, he's demon-possessed, and Jesus removes this demon, casts it out, and the man, his muteness is removed. And that change that occurred in this demon-possessed man creates quite a stir, quite an interest. For in verse 29 of chapter 11, it says that the crowds begin to thickly, thickly, it says, gathered together. In other words, they're, they're growing. They're growing. They're coming. And Jesus knows this, the reason that they're coming is because they're not really interested in him so much as they are seeing signs. And he rebukes them. An evil and adulterous generation just wants to be entertained. They want signs. And then we get to the heart of what's the context of our, the verses that we read. There's a dinner invitation. In Luke 11, starting in verse 37, one of these Pharisees that Jesus is rebuking in our text that we read, he says, hey, Jesus, I want you to come over for dinner. And so Jesus accepts this invitation, and it's not just a private dinner. There's some other guests there as well, kind of a private gathering of religious elites. For if you go on down in verse 45, there's another expert in the law there, another lawyer. So there's this small gathering in the home of this Pharisee. And back up in verses 37 and 38, this dinner party, this religious elite group, they gather and their special guest is Jesus. And when Jesus comes into the home, they're all disturbed at him. Because before the meal, everyone washes their hands as was their religious custom, as their tradition required. That custom, that tradition had no place in the scriptures, nothing from the law about, from God's commands about washing their hands that way, but that was the custom, that was the tradition. And as they all gather, everyone does that but Jesus. In verses 37 and 38, this is kind of getting to the context of what we read. They're disturbed, the Bible says, and they're disturbed because Jesus didn't wash his hands according to their customs, according to their traditions. He didn't recognize the tradition. He didn't recognize the custom. It just seems like he had no appreciation for it whatsoever. I started thinking about this a little bit. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that there are things that we do as God's people today, as the body of Christ, as the church, whether corporately in our gathering or individually, do you think there are any things that we do, not necessarily bad things, maybe even some good things, certainly it's good to wash your hands, but do you think there's any things that we do, maybe not bad, maybe good things, that are not based upon the Bible nor things that we do that do not help advance the mission of the gospel, but they're a part of our tradition. And if we didn't do them, if we didn't keep them, it just wouldn't be right. 
And if our brothers and sisters in Christ, if they didn't do them, if they didn't keep them, we would be upset at them. Do you think there's any things like that that we do? I think there are. In fact, I'm not going to go into them, but I just started jotting them down. So I wonder how many that I could come up with as a church, family, things that we do, tradition things, customary things, that if we didn't do them, our church would probably be upset. And I came up with about 10 or 12. And if you want to know what they are, I'll talk to you privately. That would be a good, <laughs> that would be a good interesting conversation. Things that I think that if I didn't do, Don didn't do, if this church didn't do, some of you'd be real upset. And they're not in the Bible, and they don't help advance our mission, but by God, we better do them. I think there are. That's kind of the context. That's kind of what's going on in our text. Before they begin eating, they're upset. And so after that, even pretty bold on the part of Jesus, so he knows they're upset at them. And so the rest of chapter 12, if you can read it sometime, he goes into this series of woes. He starts to rebuke them. And he doesn't just rebuke them. He gets into this whole series of things and he rebukes them. And in verse 44 of chapter 11, he actually calls them hypocrites. They're spiritual hypocrites. Any of you ever hear anybody say that about somebody else? Any of you ever think that about somebody else? They're a they're a hypocrite. They're a spiritual hypocrite. Well, that's the context. And so in the text that we read, Jesus warns his disciples of three things. He warns them. He says, beware, number one, of spiritual hypocrisy. We're going to look at these three things. He says, second, I want to warn you about intimidation and fear. And third, I want to warn you about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So that's what I want us to look at. After Jesus went inside the Pharisee's home, while he's teaching of chapter 12, the very first verse that we read, says on the outside, while he's on the inside, it says the crowds continue to grow. They swell. It says an innumerable multitude gathers, many thousands, some translations say, outside this home of this Pharisee, outside the home of this dinner, and it says the crowds are getting so large that people are trampling upon one another. And after dinner, Jesus doesn't seem to seize the moment. He doesn't go outside and speak to the masses and speak to these thousands of, the, of these, this crowd that's there. He doesn't really seem to be too impressed with the crowds. Instead, there's a more pressing need. There's a message on his heart that he has for the 12. And so the verses that we read, starting in Luke 12, 1 through 12, is really directed towards the disciples. And he warns them first of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, I think that same warning is pertinent for us today. Beware of hypocrisy. Mentioned earlier in 11, chapter 11, verse 44, Jesus calls this group of scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's from a Greek word, hypocrites. Hypocrites. it's where we get the English word hypocrite. 
And hypocrites was a term, a phrase that referred to a profession. Hypocrites, that was their profession. You know who it was? Who this professional group of hypocrites were? They were actors and actresses. A person who gets up on stage to be seen, to be heard by other people, they play a role pretending to be someone else, and they play that, and that's, that's the goal of a good Hippocrates, someone who's good at it. They play it so well that they actually kind of become emotionally the person that they're portraying. Annually, the motion picture industry today has a ceremony called the Academy Awards. And it's always televised, and some of you may watch it. They roll out the red carpet, don't they? And all of the performers walk the red carpet. The Academy recognizes the best actors, the best actresses, and awards them with an Oscar. Men and women who perform so well pretending to be someone else, pretending to be someone that they are not. During the first century, while they didn't have movies, they did have theater. And the performers would wear costumes and they would wear masks. They were Hippocrates. They were performers. That's what Jesus is saying about the scribes and the Pharisees. They're Hippocrates. They're performers. Before God and before men, they're nothing more than spiritual actors. They put on a show, a good show, full of pretense and wearing of masks. They were religious, spiritual fakes. They were phonies. Go back to chapter 11, verse 44. Jesus says, you hypocrites. And he says, if you read that verse, he says, you are like graves. Graves, he says, that are deep down below the surface. Graves that no one else really sees. And Jesus says, people walk over those graves and they never even know they're there. The point is they, these scribes, these Pharisees, they were Hippocrates. They look like religious people. They look like God's people. They look like genuine people, but they were Hippocrates. They were phonies. Jesus said, you all are whitewashed tombs. You look clean on the outside, but you are evil on the inside, full of dead men's bones. Hypocrisy is being a phony. It's being a fake. Where we're more concerned with outward appearances and what everyone thinks than we are concerned about the condition of our hearts before God. Hillcrest, beware of hypocrisy. Beware of outward appearance. Beware of trying to put up a front, put up a good show. Beware of worrying what other people might think. Do you remember Acts chapter 5? 
There was a brother named Barnabas. He's known as the encourager. And he was so moved by the brothers and sisters in Christ in his church that he had some means and said, do you remember what he does? He began to sell off his land and he took the proceeds and the money and he brought it to Peter and James, laid it at the apostles' feet and he says, hey, I want you all to take this money and I want you to use it to minister to people in our church who are in need. Isn't that a good thing? His motives are good. And then Hippocrates shows up. Ananias and Sapphira. Wanting to impress other people in the church. They sold off some land too. And they brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet. But they kept most of it back for themselves. But they made everyone else think that they gave it all. And Jesus, such a severe sin, it's such a damaging internal sin. It has such dreadful effect upon the body of Christ. It causes us to be so unhealthy. It's the first internal threat against the church, and Jesus takes them out. He removes them. And I would say to you, the greatest threat to our church today is not everybody out there. The greatest threat to us is us. Internally, Hippocrates. Jesus takes hypocrisy very seriously. Very seriously. I've heard this said, and I'm sure you've heard it said as well. Brother Charlie, when I come to church on Sundays, everybody there seems so perfect. Everybody at church seems so happy. They've got it all together, so together. Everybody seems so content and the perfect family. They look so nice. The perfect marriage, ideal kids. Financially, everybody in the church seems to be thriving. Look at those newer cars and those nicer homes. Everyone in the church is doing so good, and it seems like I'm the only one that's falling apart. Seems like I'm the only one that's struggling. I want to say to you, no, 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 no. The truth is, what's on the outside can be a big facade. Because the fact is, on the inside, I've been doing this a long time. The church, the body of Christ, we're still sinners saved by grace, and it's still full of people who are struggling, who are on a journey, struggling in their marriages, struggling with their kids, struggling with their finances, and who are fighting back anxiety and fears and difficulties. And Jesus is saying to us, it's all to take off the masks. It would be a good thing to let other people know that you're struggling too, that you're on a journey, and to get real with God and to get real with each other. I'm going to tell you something. If I was an unsaved person and I 
came to a crisis time in my life and I thought to myself, I think I'm going to go to church and give this God thing and give this Jesus thing a try. And I went to church and if everybody in that church acted like they were all perfect and all got it together, you know what? I would feel like, man, I do not fit in that place. I just don't fit. Church is not for me. I think we need to get real. And we need to remember where we all came from, that we were all dead in our sins and our trespasses before God. We were a hopeless, pitiful group of people. Ephesians 2 says, unable to save ourselves without any hope, strugglers, flailing, failing, falling, desperate, but God. Ephesians 2, 4, that's the gospel, but God. And that's our message. And Hillcrest, let that be the, the primary predominant message of our church. We are sinners still saved by the grace of God, but God, but God, that's, that's who we are. And any joy that we have and any that, peace that we have, peepus, <laughs> that's a cross between peace and purpose. <laughs> any joy, any purpose, any peace, any good gift that we have, you know what? It's all because of God. It's all because of grace. And it's not because of us lest we boast and begin to think too highly of ourselves. James says, any, any good gift, any good thing in my life, it wasn't because I was so smart and got to go to college and got an education and obeyed a big income and in a good profession. Listen, that's a good thing. But if that's a good thing and it's a gift to you, you know where it came from. It says it didn't come from you. You didn't choose your intellect. You didn't choose who were you born. You didn't choose your background, your means. You didn't choose any of that. Your physical ability, your lack of, that's all from God. And so any good thing about ourselves, may all glory and praise go only to Jesus and to him alone. Let's be real. That's the truth. You look in the mirror and you think you're good looking and handsome. Guess what? You didn't have anything to do with that. You think you're smarter than someone else? God has given you a good brain, a good intellect. You didn't vote on that. Any good thing we have, it's because of God, and he deserves the praise for it all. Let's beware of hypocrisy, worrying more about our standing before others than our standing before God. Be alert, be on guard, and take care. And Jesus also says something about hypocrisy. He says it's like leaven. Doesn't he in the text, remember that? He's talking about, he said, what is, he just goes in this thing about yeast. What does that got to do with, well, because what does yeast do? It takes just a little bit of yeast, just a little bit can permeate a big clump, a large lump. And the point is that yeast spreads. And in a church, hypocrisy can spread. Have you, have you ever heard about certain churches that they're the dignified church? They're the, the, they're the, 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 the what? They're the, the, they're the dignified church, whatever word it is. It's not, you know, I, I don't want to be a part of a dignified church. Nothing wrong, I don't want to be undignified, but I, I, that's the reputation. 
What reputation does Hillcrest have in New Albany, Mississippi? You think everybody sees this as a bunch of dignified up, uppity uppers and they wouldn't fit and be accepted and belong here? Leaven spreads, permeates. And Jesus goes on to warn in verse 2 and 3 of our text. He says, remember this, one day, one day all the masks are going to be removed and all Christian hypocrisy and all spiritual phoniness is going to be disclosed. That's a scary day. You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He addresses the sin of hypocrisy. If you pray to be seen and heard, as a mean of impressing others, or if you give to be seen and heard as a way of gaining attention to yourself, Jesus said, then that's your reward, but you'll have no reward before my Father in heaven. If that's your motive, he's issuing this warning because he knows the sin of hypocrisy is prevalent. We're prone to it because of our pride, and he warns that hypocrisy can spread and permeate so easily, he says, because motives matter. And one day, all of our motives are going to be revealed. Read verse 2 and 3. That's what he's saying here. Motives matter. Motives are going to be revealed. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have spoken in the ear and inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. It's all going to come out. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring the light. When he comes, he will bring light to the hidden things of darkness and re reveal the counsels of our hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God and not from men. Hillcrest, one day our lives, your life is going to be shown upon a big screen. And it's the screen of God's judgment. And it's going to be a split screen. And on one side of that screen is what everyone else saw about us. And on the other side of that screen is what God saw. And our aim should be to make sure the two sides of that screen are the same. That we lived true to God, true to others, and true to ourselves. No hypocrites. Let's keep away from hypocrisy. No double lives, no living one way on Sunday morning and another way Monday through Saturday. Let's be a church of the heart that is genuine and real and honest and loving and any person would be accepted here because we're more focused on pleasing God than we are pleasing men. Second, Jesus warns in the text, don't be intimidated by anyone. It's a really, this, this warning of intimidation, of fear, is really a word of encouragement. He says, you're my friends. He calls us friends. Remember there was, a, there was a song a few years ago, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me. Oh, Jesus calls us friends. And so he says, don't be intimidated by anyone. Don't be bluffed into silence. Don't be fearful. Don't conceal your allegiance to me. Notice in verse 11, he says, when you're confronted, when you're threatened, verse 8 says, and I'm going to paraphrase it, don't disown me. Don't disown me. In public, 
in conversation. Don't, don't deny me. Don't disown me. He says, make your confession. Take your stand. Martin Luther said there is a certain fear of God that when we get that right, when we develop a healthy fear of God, it makes us fearless before other people. A healthy fear of God that makes us fearless before men. He later wrote about it. We sing it. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world, word shall fell him. Let kins, goods, and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus says to his disciples, why are you intimidated by those who can kill you? Why are you afraid of those who can take your life? Most of us in this country have no fear even of that. But Jesus said, why would you even fear that? Rather, he says in verse 5, I'll show you to whom to fear. Fear him. Fear the one who has not only the power to take your life, but the one who has the power to send you to hell. Fear him. And so the point is develop a fear of God that is so strong, an awareness of God that is so strong of his holiness and of his power, and to be in such awe of God with this reverence that is so powerful that it protects us from foolish living and keeps us from ever denying him. A fear of God that is so strong that it removes all fear of confessing him before people, of being worried what people are going to think about us. That I'm so focused on what he thinks that I don't really care whether other people think I'm a Jesus freak or I'm a fool for Christ's sake. No shame, no fear of the Lord Jesus before my coworkers, colleagues, before my neighbors, before my family, before my friends, before my schoolmates, you know. I used to I used to think when I was going through junior high and high school and even during those years, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll take a stand for Jesus later. And that's a, that's a lie. And I want to encourage you young people at junior high, senior high, starting now, go ahead and take a stand for him. Take a stand for Jesus. Have no fear. Don't, don't worry about all of the, the bondage that peer pressure will put you under. Be yourself. Be the young person, young woman, the young man that God created you to be and deep down you know you really want to be. Live for Jesus without any fear. And as a means to encourage that, he says in verse 6, 7, God knows you. He really knows you. He loves you anyways. He says he cares for you. Right? He cares for you more than sparrows. And he cares for the birds of the air. Think about that. Our God knows every sparrow and cares for everyone. And he knows how many hairs are on your head. How many hairs have fallen out. He knows them all by number. 
He cares about you. He cares about me. He cares more about us than all those people we're trying to impress. They don't, they don't really care about you. Preachers, kind of like other professions in some ways, that a lot of, a lot of them are trying to cry, climb the ladder and be successful and be recognized and be praised by their peers. I told a young pastor not long ago, all these guys you're trying to impress and try to hobnob with, they don't really care about you. But there is one who does. He cares about us. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, I'm your advocate. We serve a God with all power, amazing power at the same time, one who loves us, a God who's aware of the sparrows of the field and the number of hairs in our heads. So why are you worried about men when you serve that kind of awesome, powerful God who loves and cares for you that way? We have the Father's power and care. We have the Son's advocacy. And then in verses 11 and 12, we have the Holy Spirit's presence. So beware of hypocrisy. Be aware of fear. Be aware of intimidation. And finally, he warns against this sin against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy. Look at, look at verse 10. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not, it cannot be forgiven. So back to the context. So what was the context? Luke 11, verses 14 and 15. Jesus heals a mute man who is demon-possessed, casts out the demon. There is this amazing change in this young man's life, and those who observed it, these Hypocrites, these religious hypocrites, saw what Jesus had done. They knew it was of God. They knew it was of the Holy Spirit, and they ascribed it to who? To the devil, to Satan. You see, their sin flowed out of a heart of unbelief, leading, hardened heart, leading to the sin of unbelief. So what is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, it is... The sin of unbelief, yes, unbelief and willful rejection of the Holy Spirit as he speaks, as he reveals, as he convicts, as he draws, as the Holy Spirit works, this person deliberately and willfully and intentionally not only rejects the work of the Holy Spirit, they ascribe it to being evil, to the enemy. Practically, when someone hears and understands the gospel, when the Holy Spirit bears witness with them and that, whole, that person knows that the gospel is true and they're convicted of their sin, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on a cross for their sins, and the person not only rejects him, but says it's a big joke. And they defy God and they credit it all to the enemy. Jesus says... It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not just doubt. It's not just delaying. It's completely against the heart and the conscience, denouncing Jesus, denouncing with hostility the work of the Holy Spirit, attributing it to the enemy. Jesus says they're in danger. 
Most of you here this morning, while you may say there's things in my life that I've done and I've failed him and I've denied him and I've prone to doubt things, most of us here have never said, rejected the gospel and attributed it to, to evil. And Jesus says that sin is so great, it's so unforgivable, where God gives them over to a reprobate heart, never to work in them and draw them again. Hillcrest, let's remove, let's, let's take off the masks. Amen? Let's take off the masks. No hypocrisy. We know who we are. We're still sinners saved by the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. That's who we are. Let that be our banner. Let's not be intimidated by anyone. Let's not be fearful what people are going to think about us as Christians. That you all are fools for Christ. Let's make that our banner. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ without any, without any shame, without any embarrassment. Yes, and, and we stand for him. Remove masks, remove fear, and take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. Not just today, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Stand for him. Be a voice, be a mouthpiece for the Lord Jesus. Let me close. Uh, I... I was wondering, when Jesus is speaking to those 12 disciples about hypocrites and about fear, about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, blaspheming, think about this, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And those 12 disciples listened to him and everything that he was saying. I thought of one disciple who may have been listening differently than the other 11. One disciple who was really close to Jesus. One disciple who knew who Jesus was. One disciple who looked like the rest of the disciples. One disciple who was classified as being part, but he was only veneer. Veneer. His lips uttered all the right words, but his heart was far away from Jesus. So far away that Jesus sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Hypocrites. And he split hell wide open. And Jesus said it would have been better for this man never to have been born. Hippocrates, sinning against the Holy Spirit. I'm going to live for him. Whatever years that he continues to give me, whatever breath that he allows me to have, I'm going to live for him. Let's live for him together. And let's be a church of the heart. It's genuine. 
I don't know if he... Oh, I should say this. I don't, I don't think he's... I had lunch with a brother this week here from this community. And he met me here, and after lunch, I said, you want me to drive you home? He said, well, if you want to. So I went up 15, turned down the road, drove a little ways to some rough-looking apartments on the right at a trailer park. And he said, I don't want you to pull in. You can just drop me off at the entry. And I wondered to myself, would all of those people feel welcome here? I want to do everything I can to make sure, do what I can do to make sure that any person that God brings into my path will feel loved and be accepted by Charlie Davis and by our church. Amen? Amen. No, no, no Hippocrates here. Nothing like that. Let's pray.